This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The $30 fee for drive clean checks will be ending uh, next April. That's according to the Environment and Climate Change Minister, Glenn Murray. Uh, what's the whole purpose of it? What does this mean? Uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld is with us, auto writer, post media, mother load column in the spec, and host of the Lemonade Car Show on Rogers TV. She's with us now. Hello, Lorraine. How are you today? I'm good, darling. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it. Uh, I'll start off with the uh, typical question I ask you every time we chat. What you driving? I am driving. I have to go look in the dra- pathfinder. See, that's pathetic right there, lady. <laughs> that's pathetic right there. My, oh, my. I don't know. Let me check. Let me reach in my pocket and see what keys I have. Oh, it must be a Nissan. Pathfinder. Here. There you go. All right, so you got yourself a big honking SUV. Yes, it's, it's very big, actually. Yes. <laughs> Is it now? And how many cameras does this one have? It has a billion, and my favorite one, and I had an Armada a couple weeks ago, same thing. You push a button that says camera, and it, it's looking down on you. Mm-hmm. So you have an aerial view like when you're parking and stuff, and it's really cool for people like me who are spatially challenged. So you can, you know, really. It gives you an that. aerial view of you parking? Yeah, it look you. What the monitor shows you is looking down on your car, so you can see how much space you've got around you. How do you see that? Does it shoot up an antenna with a camera on it? No, it's got sensors that feed the information back, and so it gives you a real-time overview of where your car is. It's really cool. (laughs) That is is very nice. Yes, I recommend it. All right. And how much is this piece worth that you're driving around? Oh, a billion dollars. Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) All right, not just for the camera option. Yeah, they come. We get them. Press cars are usually fairly yeah. fully loaded. Yeah, we request them to be stripped down so we can actually see what real people buy. Yeah, you know that's a valid point. I guess they're not going to give you the uh, you know the entry level model, are they? Well, some the, with stuff like the micro where that was the campaign. You know, ninety nine, ninety eight. Yeah. You know, the cheapest car. When that's the point, then yeah, we were all driving the roll down windows and loving it. It was so much fun. Yeah, really. <laughs> Be like uh, driving yeah. some sort of pedal car, I guess. It was yeah. almost well, so primitive. They have micro series. They have like a really great little race series going with those. They're they're fun. I have fun. seen that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, what is the deal with the Drive Clean program? Uh, <laughs> up until today or yesterday, what was what was the deal? When did you have to go? Oh, okay. Vehicles over seven years old every two years. You know, when you get your license renewal, it says you need an e-test done, and you go, "Damn it!" and you get all crabby. And then it went to thirty dollars. It used to be thirty-five. You have to go and get it done. The other thing is, whenever a car changes hands, like if you buy a used car, even if it's less than seven years old, you have to get an e-test done. Even if a dealer is selling a demo off the lot, unless it's a brand new car, you had to have an e-test done every time it changes really? hands. Yeah. So a lot of people are, gr- you know, grumpy about that, yeah. and I agree. The other thing is the cars that ninety-five um, percent of cars pass. Yeah. So people are going, okay, it was introduced in 99 by the conservatives, kept on board by the liberals because, you know, they like the money it brings in. But it's kind of stupid. When 95% of cars are passing, you're thinking, what's the point of this? Mm-hmm. Anything before 87 is exempt. Those are the ones kicking out the crap, but they're mm-hmm. exempt from it. And the other thing is if your car, if you're told it's going to cost more than $450 to fix what's wrong with it emissions-wise, they'll give you a conditional pass for two years. You can kick the can down the road and not fix it. So you're putting the wrong people yeah, in jail, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so really, does any of this matter if you're driving a VW? <laughs> well, that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let, let's talk about the validity of these tests. I mean, you know, uh, 
you know, at one time it was sticking a thing up your tailpipe, then it was just uh, plugging into the computer and la, 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 la. I mean, were, were they doing what they were set out to do? Well, initially, yes, because what you're... There's an argument there, too, because they're saying, well, it's the government saying we achieved what we set out to do or what the other government set out to do, which was, you know, get the polluters off the road. Mm-hmm. But flip side, the manufacturers are making cars that are so much better on emissions that they're going, well, we took care of that. Like, it's not your testing. It's we did it. And there's arguments on both sides. It's like, yeah, we're catching the people. You've all driven behind a belching piece Mm -hmm. of garbage down the road thinking, why isn't that off the road? The problem is it's a test that, as usual, honest people doing the right thing pay. Yeah. (laughs) And people who aren't don't. Yeah. And that's what gets in everyone's craw. I don't care what your political stripe, because that's not reasonable. And yeah. people need reasonable laws before they will obey them without so, complaining. So are we just at the point now with new, newer vehicles, as you know, these have cycled through, uh, that they're so environmentally friendly now that you don't need these sort of emission tests? Well, that's why they took, they, you know, they said last February, like February of this year, that they were going to remove the cost at 30 bucks because it really irked a lot of people. Yeah. But even having to go in to get it done every two years is a pain. So taking off the cost is good. Um, it took them a year and a half to get to it. Um, but what's going to be happening now is cars, the, the telematics you have in your car, your car already monitors everything and sends that information back. And so what they're saying is within probably a couple of years, at least one in four cars will just automatically send the information to the government that your car passes. So you don't even have to go into a garage. This is kind of scary, though, isn't well, it? Well, I am not a fan, except so, your so, car is already squealing on you in so many ways that just wave the flag. And this is just one more thing. And we're going this way. And people are all happy to have... You, you know, you see those ads where everyone's TVs are all hooked up to their alarm systems and their yeah. computers and their house is all wired and they're all calling you a nerd if you don't do it. I think you're an idiot if you do. That is so much stuff flying around that is so yeah. easily hacked. And now key fobs can be hacked so easily. Your car could be taken out of your driveway and the keys never left your pocket. It's hmm. so doable. With, <laughs> with this app that they're talking about, that the information will then automatically be sent and, and you'll know when you go to get your license, I guess renew your license, whether your vehicle has passed or not. Or maybe yeah. you'll get an email. I, I'm guessing you'll get an email or a notification that it passed and you're fine. Or when you get your license renewal, yeah. it will say your your vehicle's passed already, we know. I still have this squeaky feeling at my spine that so much information is flying around. And yes, it's convenient, and it's sold to me as it's convenient and it's great, and it's all the rest of it. Nah, it creeps me out. And Ooh. you know what? I think we should all be a little more creeped out about this. It's not going anywhere, and everyone calls me old and the Luddite. I don't care. I don't, I don't like... So much information. Um, so much information. Who get who gets the information? Does that go to the ministry? Well, yeah, the ministry. The same ones that send you the thing saying you have to get it done before we you can renew your license. So, so this bypasses the dealer, bypasses the manufacturer. Yeah. And actually, the minister, um, the environment minister, he said, "This is awesome. You don't even have to go to a mechanic." And I'm going. Dude, it's good to go to a mechanic. Two times a year, your car should be yeah. <laughs> under real eyes for your tires, the hose, like all that stuff. Yeah. So I get his sentiment, but I disagree with the delivery. Um, you need to see a mechanic twice a year. Your car needs to have tires changed out. It needs to have a real person look at it. And all the computers in the world can't replace that. So I get what he means. However, 
I don't uh, want people thinking they can totally avoid everything. I mean, what's to stop this information from getting into the hands of the manufacturer or the dealer? I mean, they could do this with the mechanics on your car. Hey, did you know you need brakes? Did you know well, you need this? Well, they do. If you think about it, your tri- tire pressure monitors, like mm-hmm. we're already going that way. But I mean, they, they're they're just into the cockpit of the car. They're not being relayed back to the dealer that says, hey, by the way, uh, I, I understand you're due for an oil change. Not because well, it's been six months, but because we're actually monitoring your vehicle. Well, I mean, we've been moving towards that. It's rudimentary, yeah. but everyone knows there's an oil life monitor, and there has been in most cars. Yeah. And I remember I got a van. Oh, don't make fun of me. I bought a minivan, and the oil light, they said, the oil light will come on. This monitor will come on tells you to change. So, of course, I'm driving around staring at it, wondering when it's going to come on. And I'm old school. I like to change every 5,000K. I don't care because, frankly, frequent oil changes are the cheapest, cheapest yeah, way you can keep your car in shape. That's very true. That's very true. And they go, oh, yeah, don't wait for the light to come on. That's crazy. I'm going... Can we all get together on this, like yeah. hold hands on the information, the manufacturers, the dealers, the w- warranty and the manuals? What am I supposed to do? If you're going to tell me wait for a light, do I wait for a light? And they're going, well, no, not really. Well, and then there's times where you'll take your car and they'll forget to reset the light or they'll do this yeah. or do that. And, you know, I mean, what yeah. do you do? And I think you've got two schools of people usually, unfortunately, people who are fastidious and, you know, want to do all the stuff ahead of time, if not themselves, and other people who will go as long as they can. Yeah right to the walls and not want to do any maintenance. And that's dangerous. And especially if that car gets passed down the line to other people. And nobody wants a bare minimum car that's been maintained, not for cheap stuff. Yeah, good point. So after April, is this just gone or is just the fee gone? Just the fee. So when are they going to, they say that this is the first step to eliminate the program altogether. Is that what we're going to see? But not until, I guess, we've all got an app for that? Well, my guess is as the cars start to, like, if they're at one in four are probably already able to do it, um, uh-huh. as all the cars come on board and can do it, they're still trying to monitor. It's, it's, it's a, I don't know. When you get 95% of cars passing, it's stupid. Yeah. Um, it's the older cars they need to catch, the older cars. And then, again, we say, well, that's a tax on the poor. That's, you know, people who are driving older cars, it's because they can't afford to drive newer ones. Good point. So, mean to do that to them. So there's a political implication as well. But we can't have crap spewing out. The environment matters. And So who, who pays for this if they're going to drop the charge after April? Well, the, the program's been making mad money for yeah. the last couple of years. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and again, it's not... I mean, they'll suck it up. They know it's going to cost. What they say? They can shut it down for ten years and still have enough to cover it, probably. Well, yeah. I mean, the optics of it were so tough; they had to hand something back. I mean, they're putting a tax on gas. So, I mean, they'll make it back somewhere. This is a three-card Monty. Welcome to your government. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ain't that the truth? Welcome to every government, actually. Before you get going. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you were almost about to sidetrack me there, and then you'd never shut me up. I know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so we're eventually just going to see this whole thing phased out. Yeah, BC scrapped it last year. Um, they had they had it in place, and they decided it had done its job, and then it was over. Um, it would be nice to see governments. And why has it done its job? It's done its job because manufacturers have made cars more efficient. Yes, because they had a compliance rate. Like, they yeah. weren't catching anybody. Yeah. Like it's, so it's like having a photo radar on a spot where nobody ever gets a ticket. You finally move it. It's, yeah. So BC did that, and I was thinking the other day, I'm old school, and the Skyway Bridge used to have tolls on it. Yeah. And they took them off when the bridge was paid for. It's right. like, what a concept. Yeah, like, really. You know, so I, I wish the reason we all push back on so many things is because we know there is no end. In yeah, it's just a money pit. Say there is. Yeah, like it just becomes, 
you know, they can get us used to it. And then well, you know, forever. I've been complaining for years that the whole green movement, and again, don't don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-green. I'm, I'm believing in renewables and, and saving the planet for the future. But it seems to me for the last several, for at least the last decade, this has been used to, to, to generate revenue. It's not about saving the money. It's about or saving the environment. It's about generating revenue. And that's ex- and this program is a perfect example of that. It's Yeah, it was started for one reason. And again, this is different governments that have played into And it's this, changed. So it's it, it, and, it has, yeah, yeah. and it has served its purpose. But yeah. uh, I, I think it served its purpose. I, I don't know that it's, you know, the, the worst offenders aren't being punished anyway. Yeah. So what's the point? Yeah. And, you know, decent people are just, so here we go again. I just moved cars over last week, had, you know, did some transfers. Got to get a knee test on a perfect car. It's like, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pain. You know, Lorraine and, Sommerfeld is with us, auto writer, post-media, motherload column in the Hamilton Spec and host of the Lemonade Car Show on Rogers TV. Lorraine, thanks uh, as usual. Have fun and enjoy your Pathfinder. Thank you. I'll unless you unless you've got something else just in the time we've chatted. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A uh, House of Commons committee has... Uh, recommended that Canada Post come up with a plan to reinstate uh, door-to-door mail delivery and even consider email and social network services. This is a perfect example of what happens when a union props up an industry that is no longer needed. Uh, If this wasn't publicly financed by you, it would have been out of business a long time ago. But here we are creating false economies with false security, false sense of paycheck, false sense of pension for a job that is declining, declining, declining every single year. And, you know, this is what the same sort of situation the old Russia found itself in when it tried to control everything uh, for extended periods of time and then all of a sudden opened up to a free market and realized that half the jobs that were there were artificially were artificial jobs. They were there because the industry, well, kind of like the, kind of like the energy industry in Ontario, really, when you think about it. Uh, a lot of stuff there that's just being sub- subsidized, and there's no real demand for the service. There's no real demand for the work that the employees are doing, uh, which is sad. But anybody knows it's happened in every single industry, and we've all moved on and and retrained and done whatever we needed to do to move on, and and keep food on the table. But it seems that for some reason we just keep beating this dead horse and now to not only, uh, you know, consider reinstating uh, door-to-door delivery for the people that lost it, it's now coming up with other ways to try to, to keep this organization afloat artificially. I mean, if there isn't a demand for the service, you got to change something. You've got to do something different. And I just don't understand why we are going down this path and why it even became an election issue in the first place. Well, I guess we know why, in order to gain votes. Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's on the line with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I am doing just fine, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, Why would a House of Commons committee uh, recommend reinstating door-to-door delivery that was lost last year? I mean, to me, this just makes absolutely no sense to me and and is moving backwards to subsidize uh, uh, people's jobs that that really have, unfortunately, uh, subsided, have no purpose now. Scott, I agree with you completely, and, and let me just explain. Um, just as back, by way of background, I, I want your listeners to know I do not consult directly or indirectly for anyone associated with 
with Canada Post uh, at all or stakeholders uh, whatsoever. Uh, I did do my PhD thesis, uh, defended in 89, 850 pages on the origins, growth, and decline of the postal uh, function in Canada, of Canada Post. I wrote a monograph last year on uh, called Is the Check Still in the Mail? And I worked in head office in the finance division where I saw the revenues coming in from every post office in Canada from 1982 to 1984, in between my master's and my PhD. Why I mention that is that's when digital disruption first started affecting the post office. The digital disruption in the early 80s was the very first digital form of tech, really, communication technology. And, of course, I'm talking about the fax machine. Now let's fast forward to address your question. In my uh, my uh, monograph last year, the check still in the mail, I used all public records, uh, in fact, past commissions studying the post office, and, of course, the audited financial statement. The fundamental problem facing the post office, which this committee resolutely refused to acknowledge yesterday, is that the post office is digitally disrupted, just like the taxi industry is being disrupted by Uber, hotel industry is being disrupted by Airbnb, as we've seen the music industry disrupted, there's very few music stores anymore. As the video store industry was disrupted, we see very few video stores anymore. I mean, this has been going on in our lifetime. You know, the 33 and a third playing records of the late 60s when I was a teenager was disrupted and killed by the Sony, um, you know, mini cassettes. And then cassettes were killed by CDs. And then CDs were killed by MP3s. We have lived through digital disruption. And this committee refused really to recognize the most fundamental problem facing the post office, that the demand for the post office measured in pieces of mail mailed goes down 7% a year. One-third of the post office has vanished in the past five years in Canada. It's going to lose another third in the next five years. And this committee, as I said, refused to address it, refused to come up with credible and realistic solutions that would... uh, 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 confront that problem. And one more quick point, I just want to get this out. It was not only did it fail to address the fundamental problem, but it was a very biased committee. All they invited uh, to appear before were people that were very, very strong supporters, uh, what I would call the hardcore users of the post office, which is a very small number, by the way. Again, I have the data from the post office, from the audited financials. They And they didn't invite anyone. I wasn't invited to appear before this. Uh, the person that wrote the uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel Report in uh, 2010, the president of Acadia University, was not invited. Uh, and so there were a whole bunch of people that were not invited who have actually studied the post office. What they invited were sociologists and labor relations scholars who are experts on unions, but they're not experts on the digital disruption facing the post office. So the report was, A, significantly biased towards only those people who favor throwing more money at it to try to keep it alive artificially. And secondly, it was, the problem was is they failed to come to terms with the fundamental problem facing the post office. But Ian, isn't it that, uh, isn't it that fundamental reason that, th- that this is not working? I mean, they're actually killing the post office by trying to make it do something that isn't there. I mean, there is, yeah. there is a need for the post office. It can survive, but just not delivering letters ma- uh, uh, home to home. Exactly. In fact, I have made this argument before that the people who claim that they're, they're strongly supporting the post office they are an example of the road to hell is paved with the very best of intentions because what they're advocating is not going to save the post office. It's going to literally kill the post office. Exactly. Because the fundamental problem is 
demand is declining, which means in plain English, the revenues going are coming in are going down. And you cannot just by invoking, as they did in this report, literally hundreds of times, it's an essential public service, it's a national public good, that, you know, it's almost like whistling past a graveyard to scare away the ghost. It doesn't scare away the ghost. It doesn't make the revenue come back. And so as a consequence, what they would do is if these recommendations that they adopted, which does not deal with the decline in demand, were adopted, we would wake up, all of us, in five years or so, including the Liberal government, and be facing a situation where we would have 60,000 employees working for Canada Post with all the mail processing plants and all the trucks and almost no mail left to deliver. And that is literally where we're going. So we've got to transform the post office while there's still time from a letter carrier that delivers mail five days a week to 15 plus million addresses in Canada instead to a courier company that supports electronic commerce, which is growing at 15% per year. So there is a solution. The post office of the future is going to be a lot smaller for sure, maybe five or 10,000 employees, not 60,000. But anyone who thinks you can create or keep the post office alive with 60,000 employees when the demand is literally collapsing before our eyes and will disappear mostly within 10 years is living in a delusional world. And they're refusing, they're in deep denial of this Reality. Well, you know, I, 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 I can't. I have a hard time believing, Ian, that they don't get it. I think they do get it. There's some sort of ulterior reason. There's some yes. sort of ulterior motive. Like it, it absolutely makes no sense at all. As you said, this is a perfectly viable industry if they just modify and give up on home yes. uh, on home mail delivery. But instead, yes. by even uh, reinstating mail delivery to just those that lost it last year, there's nobody that can come up with a logic for that. I mean, let's be serious. So why is it they are continuing to do this? Why is it? What's the political reason? I think you're, you're on to it. I mean, you know, look, I'm not suggesting to anyone that they're all a bunch of dummies in the Liberal Party. I do not believe that. I think there's some very smart people in the Liberal Party. I think there's some very sharp cabinet ministers. I think Prime Minister Trudeau is a smart young man. He understands this reality that we're all facing in Canada. I think instead, I think instead that what the problem is is that they did run on it because it was politically very popular. And, and so as a consequence, they threw this out almost as a, uh, a benefit to the base uh, for the next election. They did this report that, that echoed the concerns of the base, and I'm talking the hardcore that want the post office saved at all costs. So they can say in the next election, look, we had this report done, we heard your voices, we reproduced your concerns in the report, we did all of these things. And, uh, and, you know, there was nothing, you know, further that we could do. So I think that they were, were doing this to give themselves cover so they won't be accused of at least uh, violating all their campaign promises. And then later, once the numbers come out, they'll have somebody else do the dirty work. And I mean by that, the accounting firm, for example, said that if they don't make any changes, the post office is going to be losing over $700 million a year. And so they'll get a further report down the road that will say, look, everybody, we're facing a you know, disaster if we don't do something. And the Liberal government will then say, gee whiz, we very reluctantly have to go along with this because if we don't, it's going to cost the taxpayers enormous amounts of money. So I think that this, this is their first step to say, look, we tried. We tried to honor our commitments to you. But, you know, Coopers and Librand or Ernst & Young or one of the big accounting firms, they made me do it, almost like Flip Wilson and that famous comedian of 30 years yeah. ago. His hmm. great catch line on Ellie's shows was, the devil made me do it. 
So why do some believe that we can prop up false industries and pay people to do jobs that are not needed just to keep them employed? I remember Bob Ray saying when he left the NDP and went to the Liberals saying, uh, programs are great, but you can't pay for them without prosperity. So how can we justify propping up jobs that they're not needed? It's a false economy. It is, and I want to be very careful um, because I'm not trying to slander the people that support this. Um, but the people that did support it, and I did read, I want to just put this out there. I got up at 5 o'clock this morning. I downloaded the report. I read the entire report. I assure you I did. And what struck me were the witnesses that appeared before the House of Commons Committee and had all their names and all their affiliations and where they were, uh, you know, and, and who they worked with and so forth. And they were overwhelmingly from the union movement from the public sector, public sector unions, public sector employees, and and uh, and most of the academics involved were, uh, in fact, overwhelmingly were sociologists and labor relations studies. I am not saying this to criticize them, okay? But they have a different view. They don't focus on whether the organization is viable or can sustain itself. So, uh, the you know labor relations scholars focus on the worker and the union. Whereas the business community that did, to the extent that the business community did testify, they were saying something very, very different, as were the accounting firms. So it, it, what I'm trying to say is this, I don't believe that this is the voice of all of Canadians. In fact, when you look at the polls, I think the majority of Canadians do support and recognize that the post office is not sustainable on the old model. So what you heard before this committee, it was very selective voices. It was just what they chose to hear were essentially the hardcore supporters and people in the union movement and government. They did not hear what I would call a representative cross-sample of public opinion in Canada. It was a very biased uh, committee in that respect. In uh, respect, This committee also suggested that there was room for email and social network services. Uh, those usually yeah. uh, don't generate uh, you know, that many jobs. They usually replace more. Is there a viable alternative there? I, I read those with great curiosity, and the first thing I thought uh, that struck, my, struck me immediately was, are you serious? The post office is going to start taking on Google and Gmail mm. or, or Microsoft Hotmail? These are companies with hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. They have thousands and thousands of engineers from Waterloo and some of the other great water, engineering universities in the world, and these are people at, at Canada Post and Cup W. They've never been in that industry. They're not in the IT industry. They're not electrical engineers. So, and and then the second point is is that is that the the uh, hot, the, uh, the email services are generally lost leaders for these companies. They don't do it to make money off them because, as you know and I know, Gmail is free, Hotmail is free. So, where is the revenue going to come from? So, again, these are people grasping at straws. And, and the solutions that were put forward in the report, by the way, I want to point out, they were not evidence-based. They did not have uh, any rudimentary or basic cost-benefit analysis that said, well, you know, here's the cost if we go into this market and here's the revenue. No numbers whatsoever to support these things. I mean, one sociologist said, let's essentially retrain Cup W people to go into seniors' homes to check up on them almost as an extension of health care. And I thought, well, wait a minute, we're talking a post office. We're not talking healthcare trained nurses and trained healthcare workers. So again, the solutions that were being proposed were really stretching uh, credulity because they were going into things far removed from what the post office has done for 150 years, which is 
uh, deliver physical mail. And at least going in a parcel post is very closely related to delivering mail, except you're delivering a parcel and you're not delivering it five days a week. You're only delivering going to the door when there is a parcel. But otherwise, there's a lot of similarities. You use mail processing centers, you have trucks, you have drivers, you go to the various addresses in Canada. Email and electronic digital media is a very, very different industry. And, and and one that is providing them revenue. I mean, I did online shopping this week. My goodness, it is absolutely fabulous. And it's Canada Post that's delivering yep. this stuff. Yep. I mean, you can, yep. th- there's a perfect example of how they modernized and, and adapted to, to be a part of that digital world. It's, it's like they've got one foot in bed and one foot out of bed. Exactly. And in fact, when you look, and I have again, using the audited financial statements, we, this is an untold success in Canada, is Canada Post's uh, entry into the e-commerce space. And I don't mean that they've become e-commerce sellers. They are the partner of the e-commerce sellers where they're signing these deals across Canada with Amazon and all these other companies to be the exclusive uh, provider of e-commerce. And they've got all kinds of really good pricing involved. And so they're getting better and better. And their e-commerce, their personal post division is growing very rapidly. The problem is, is it's growing from a much smaller base. So although it's growing a lot faster, uh, the problem is that transactional mail, and I mean by that letter mail and ad mail, junk mail, is declining so fast, and it was such a big part of the company, three quarters of all of its business, that although they're really doing well in e-commerce delivery, the other part of their business is collapsing faster than they're growing on the e-commerce side which means they're shrinking overall in their total size. That's interesting. And, and that's inevitable. That's interesting, Ian, because you know I'm going to get email from people that will say, you know what, they're generating so much money, they're making profits because of all this e, all of these e-transactions that that money should be used to prop up home mail delivery that no one's using. I mean, the, the, well, they'll say Canada Post is making a fortune, so what's the problem? Yeah, I mean, I've read or seen that argument, and it's so silly on the face of it. There only is one set of financial statements at Canada Post. So all the money goes into the one pot called the Canada Post annual revenues. So the idea that the money is coming in from e-commerce, from a parcel post delivery of e-commerce, and it's going somewhere else is simply nonsensical. Anybody can download the financial statements. They're not secret, by the way. Anybody can Google Canada Post annual report 2015. And it has it all laid out there, how much they get from revenues from the parcel post division, from e-commerce, how much they're getting from letter mail, junk mail, and so forth. It's all broken down. And, and as I said, Canada Post, up even today, the majority of their, re- of their revenue comes from letter mail and from junk mail. And that's the stuff we get to the door, the flyers. And that's three-quarters of their business. That part of their business is collapsing. The e-commerce side of their business, which is 25%, or let's call it the parcel post side, I use fancy terms. 25% of their business is parcel post. It's growing like crazy. But the problem is it's only 25%. Hmm. Three quarters is collapsing. 25% of their business is growing. But the 25% isn't growing fast enough to offset the collapse in the 75% of their business. That is the problem. They're doing very well in one area called parcel post. But you and I and all of us in Canada use the post office less and less and less every year. Does anybody know any young person or even middle-aged person that writes letters anymore? I haven't written a letter in probably 30 years. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. A House of Commons committee is recommended Canada Post come up with a plan to reinstate door-to-door delivery and consider email and social networking services. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thanks very much. Uh, all right, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Gerald is on the line. Gerald, what are your thoughts on all of this? It's Harold. I'm anyway, sorry, Harold. That's okay. Uh, I just wanted to tell you, uh, there's so many places in rural Ontario that have postal boxes, and they have the elderly. I mean, I myself have owned several homes in and around the rural areas of Ontario as a blind person. Uh, I mean, I had to go to my postal box and get my mail. And, you know, they're talking about money uh, money costs. Well, in the rural Delrymple area, uh, I had to go to a postal box, but all the farmers had their mail delivered right to the end of their laneways. And there's two people per car. I mean, a waste of money is unbelievable. I owned a home in Waterford, and I just left that recently. And they would have the post office open on a Saturday, paying overtime. For what reason? And they, in Waterford, even delivered rural to all the farmers with two people in the car to every laneway of a farm. How ridiculous is that? I hear you. Harold, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, I, I just don't get it. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't employ people in an empty warehouse that doesn't do anything, just because they belong to a union. And you know, as Ian Lee was saying, these people are going to kill Canada Post because Canada Post can sustain itself in the e-commerce uh, division. But it's not going to replace the old school of, of, of door-to-door delivery. It's not going to replace that kind of revenue. But there is still a future for it and it allows us to keep a modified version. Like, would you not rather have uh, a, a super mailbox and the option of it coming uh, once, twice, or even five days a week rather than losing the whole damn thing so a few people can have home mail delivery? I mean, how again, it reminds me of, of a socialist or, or a communist country where they're propping up jobs just to keep people working in an industry that nobody needs. You know, you're all building birdhouses and nobody wants birdhouses anymore. It just <laughs> makes no sense to me. But as one person pointed out, uh, this is the same for Stelco as well. Uh, I'm not sure it's quite accurate, but I certainly see the point. At the end of the day, it's progress. It's the same reason we don't have home milk delivery anymore. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about electricity prices. Uh, The leader of the NDP, Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, has been doing a hydro tour to discover how deep the situation with electricity, electricity uh, rates, and, of course, energy poverty is. Joining us now, uh, leader of the Ontario NDP, Andrea Horvath, and she's here now. Hello, Andrea. How are you today? Uh, A little bit chilly, Scott, but not bad, thanks. Yes, winter has finally arrived in Ontario, hasn't it? I I regret not wearing my furry boots today. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you there. All right, let's let's chat about this. Tell us about your tour and what you've been doing recently. Well, I mean, I've been listening, really, to to the concerns that families and businesses are uh, telling me about their hydro bills and the worry about the future, not only for themselves, frankly, but for the next generation as well. Uh, people are quite concerned. I mean, I was on uh, Lock Street today visiting with a small business that sent out some of the alarm bells not too long ago locally. The Chamber of Commerce today was out with a with a letter as well. Uh, we know concerned about hydro. I've talked to 
people in the mining industry, in the forestry industry, uh, in the, um, you know, in, as I said, in small business, and of course, households, families, you know, single moms, uh, you know, families who do very well, middle class families who are worried about, uh, about, uh, you know, the impacts of the increasing hydro bills and how it's, how it's affecting them in terms of the decisions they have to make, uh, about their families now. Should, can we afford to put the kids into sports? Can we afford the lessons, you know, the piano lessons? Uh, can we afford, you know, to put food on the table versus, you know, pay the hydro bill? These are the kinds of decisions that uh, that families are making. Today I talked, as I said, to a small business owner who said she's had to cut back on her staff. Uh, her staff aren't getting as many hours. She's putting in more of the work herself uh, because she can't pay the hydro bill and keep uh, the staff hours up. You know, you bring up a valid point, Andrea, and we've certainly been talking about a lot of those that have been on the margins, the 1,400 families that have been disconnected and now reconnected after uh, some pressure from uh, from Global News and such to do so. But, you know, uh, being on the margins, those are the people that are affected uh, most severely. But th- as you pointed out, this affects everybody uh, across uh, uh, every scenario, and especially small businesses, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely! Uh, it's uh, it's really hurting a, a lot of people um, and a lot of uh, a lot of small businesses. And again, I mean, it, I was at a shop as I said today. It's not like it's a huge place. They don't have tons of equipment, um, and the bills are unmanageable. So there's um, th- that has serious implications in terms of, of course, on the bigger scale, our economic competitiveness, uh, but also on on some of these mom and pop shops and whether they're going to be able to uh, continue to operate. Uh, as I said, you know, the staffing issue as well. So uh, we know that small business is a big generator of jobs, uh, the biggest kind of, um, you know, employer, uh, job creator uh, in uh, in our economy these days is small business. And uh, this, is, uh, this is really, really worrisome. If this person is reflecting a trend, which I believe she is, uh, around the impact on small business, uh, that's going to mean jobs for folks. And that's the last thing we need is more people out of work. How did we get here? Why couldn't uh, the Liberals see this coming? I mean, like, I've talked to professors and such, and I mean, lots could see this coming uh, years ago. How did, how did we get here? Well, I mean, they, they really, I think, ignored some of the fundamental uh, benefits that we had of a public electricity system. It wasn't perfect, for sure. Uh, there were issues with Hydro One. I think everybody would acknowledge that. But fundamentally, the system operated in the best interests of the ratepayers, both industrial, commercial, as well as uh, as households. But, um, you know, the system's been largely privatized now, and and it's it's not operating, you know, for the purposes of meeting the needs of our economy. But Andrea, and our, let me Andrea, Andrea, let me interrupt you there, if I may. But this was going on long before the sale of Hydro One. No, it's twenty years now. They've been privatizing the electricity system since Mike Harris started it in the late nineties. Uh, Hydro One's only the latest privatization on the on the the um, distribution mm-hmm. side of the equation. But the generation of hydro, these fixed price contracts. Yes, there's some in green energy, of course. The Auditor General is critical, but these fixed-price contracts have been signed for 20 years now with all kinds of different private companies. Uh, Quebec and, um, and Manitoba didn't do that. They stayed public, and they're paying less than half of what we're paying here in Ontario. But it, seemed to, get, it, but it seemed to get right, really out of hand with the Green Energy Act, with the Green Energy Plan. I mean, as you said, this has been going on, and, and it's just in the last decade or so where we've really seen these rates go north. It seems like once she implemented her Green Energy Act that it just, every, everything went to hell in a handbasket. 
You know, and it's interesting because I think they had an opportunity to do something there that people could get behind. Because I think overall people think that green energy, you know, theoretically is a smart thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We want to do the right thing by the environment. But what did they do? They sold it off on these ridiculous contracts to the private sector. They pitted community against community, farmer against farmer. Um, more people are opposed now to green energy uh, than, than one, of, one would have ever thought because of the way that the Liberals implemented that, uh, that legislation. It was shameful, absolutely. And they're out of touch. And you know what, Scott? They've been out of touch for a long time. They've been going along on their, you know, on their missions to, to, uh, to, to undertake all of these activities uh, but forgetting, forgetting that what they're supposed to be doing is providing good government uh, that uh, that meets the needs of people in this province. They they forgot that that was that that should be their primary goal. You bring another interesting point up, Andrea. Do you think? And I've thought about this. And, and as you mentioned, I, everybody wants to be green. Everybody wants to save the planet for the next generation. But do you think they've done more harm to the green energy movement by turning skeptics and bringing them to the forefront, and other people saying, "See, look, it doesn't work." It seems they've done more to harm the movement than they have to advance it. I would say absolutely 100% you're, you're right. You're right on the money. And you know what else is adding salt to the wound? Is people are doing what they can, even within their own household, to conserve, right? They're changing the light bulbs. They're doing their laundry at nighttime and their, uh, their dishwashers, they're putting them on at nighttime. They're, they're doing everything they can to conserve energy just on a household basis, and yet the bills keep going through the roof. Which, make, which makes people, you know, very disheartened uh, and, and very upset because they think that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They should be rewarded for that, and instead they continue to, continue to get penalized with out-of-control electricity bills. Uh, Premier Wynn says the opposition is yelling a lot but isn't coming up with any solutions or not telling anybody what, the plan, what their plan is. What can the NDP do to fix this? Well, she's, not, she's actually not being very truthful. We've actually brought a number of... Uh, of initiatives forward. In fact, this uh, 8% off, even though it's not nearly enough to help people because things have gotten so bad, that was an NDP idea. Yeah, that was your uh, idea, I mean, wasn't it? It was, absolutely. And, and I mean, and we're also saying, uh, I mean, I know that people don't necessarily agree with this, but uh, we've seen it across not only our, our province, but across our country, across North America. We should not be privatizing Hydro One. We should not be privatizing Hydro One. It's only going to make the rates go up even further. So there's that issue. Uh, there's, there's looking at the Ontario Energy Board to make sure that it's acting as a true watchdog for the consumers of this, uh, of this utility or uh, of this uh, essential service as opposed to uh, the function that it plays now, which, which basically in many ways rubber stamps a lot of the requests that come through uh, for rate increases, right? There's work that the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer can do to help us pour through some of those fixed-price contracts. Look to see whether we can get some value uh, for the people of Ontario. I mean, there is a number of things, and I have to say, the Premier promised she was going to press the reset button when she prorogued the legislature yeah. and got the new throne speech, in, but she didn't reset anything. It's really clear that the reset is going to come in 2018, and, and people are going to have to wait till then to, uh, to really see some changes in this province. Uh, we all remember uh, Premier Wynne uh, announcing that, in using the word mistake, has, any, has she said it all in the ledge what the mistake was or what plans are being made to correct the mistake in any way? No, no, and, and that's what, uh, again, makes that, uh, that uh, acknowledgement ring so hollow. Uh, she has not identified 
what she says she's made the mis- she's made a mistake in the energy in the energy file. Well, exactly. What what mistake? I mean, you can't really fix it if you don't acknowledge what it is, which she hasn't done. So again, it's 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 more about her trying to hang on to power. It's more about the liberals trying to look after themselves and each other as opposed to actually doing something to make a difference for the people of Ontario. That's what their focus has always been. Um, and, and that's why we see uh, such a mess in our electricity system, frankly, in our health care system, I would say also in our, uh, our education system. Uh, they forgot about what the fundamentals are, um, and they, their, their, their biggest um, focus has been how to pre- pre- preserve their own power and how to make their friends very, very rich. Where do you think this is going, Andrea? I mean, it's still a long way till the next uh, election. Um, and again, we're, they're at the point now where they're admitting a, a mistake and such. Uh, where is this going? I mean, do, do you think that by the time the next election rolls around, they're waiting until then to pull out the solution? Well, who knows? I mean, it's, it would be exactly their kind of cynical behavior again, because it wouldn't be about timely solutions. It would be about doing something uh, to get reelected, as opposed to doing the right thing by the people of the province. So I, I wouldn't put anything past them when it comes to the, the rollout of any solutions or the timing uh, of anything. Like they've been in office for 13 years. All of the problems that we have in this province are directly their responsibility. After 13 years, they've driven our healthcare hospitals into the ground. Right? They've they've put people in a position where they have to choose between buying groceries and paying their hydro bill. That's not the Ontario that people voted for. Uh, that's not what people wanted from their government. Um, but that's certainly what we've gotten stuck with. But you know what? I don't think it has to be that way. I think you can actually have a government that operates in a way that's in the best interest of the people, that puts the people's needs first. And we certainly need to do that uh, with the electricity system. Uh, Auditor General, obviously been quite vocal lately, talked about uh, the energy file and trying to make the uh, global adjustment charge more transparent since it does make up like 70% of our bill, yet isn't really explained. Will the NDP do more to, to clarify all of that and to, uh, well, you know, at one point they said that it'll just confuse uh, customers, which I think is, is just even more insulting. Well, uh, I mean, it's arrogant, right? It's totally arrogant that they would have that kind of response. Look, this was the premier who said that she was going to be the most transparent premier that we've ever seen, that transparency was her number one uh, commitment. There's nothing transparent about the way this government operates. And, and yes, the Auditor General criticized the global adjustment, but there's also the cap-and-trade system, which... Same thing going to happen there, yeah. Well, well and, and apparently... Um, the Ontario Energy Board says that they don't have to show on the gas bills yeah. how much the uh, rates are going to increase or how much the, the charges are going to increase because of cap-and-trade. Meanwhile, if cap-and-trade is going to be successful, we have to be able to see what it is that we're paying for. It has to be transparent. People have to know what they're contributing uh, to this effort. Uh, otherwise, it, it'll become a sham. It'll be seen as yet, yet another uh, tax grab, if you will. And that's not going to be, you know, a successful program. Is this, is this momentum on the electricity file going to continue to the next election, do you think? Well, you know what? I, in some ways, I hope it doesn't because people need relief now. You know, Scott, uh, you know, the proper political response would probably be, oh, yes, I hope this momentum keeps going so that we can ride this right into the campaign. Yeah. But I actually have more consideration for the people of Ontario. And I hope, like hell, uh, that something changes fast so that folks can get a break because... I don't want to see people suffer for the next, 
year and a half. I'm very worried about it, frankly. Andrea Horbath has uh, has been with us, leader of the Ontario NDP, and of course on a hydro tour right now just to find out exactly how bad it is. Andrea, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.